My guest this week is Mike Apicella, of Human Host, and of many other bands throughout the years. Uh, I have a few notes before we begin. First, throughout the past couple years, Mike's been putting together this super thorough archive of the music scene that he was part of in Towson and Glenarm, Maryland, in the early 90s. And a lot of those bands were huge inspirations to me personally. But even if you don't know those bands, the compilations and the site itself are this amazing piece of work. And I feel like there's never been anything quite like it before. So if you get a second, check out TowsonGlenArmFreakouts.wordpress.com and read the timeline, check out the compilations. This is going to be part one of a two-part interview. Part two comes out next week. So that's why we're spending like pretty much all of this episode talking about stuff that happened in like the early 90s. Here's the other note. Um, I know this is going to disappoint some listeners, but we're not going to talk about Charm City suicides at all. That's one of my favorite bands of all time, and the same for many other people in Baltimore and people in general. Um, I wanted to get the scoop, but Mike made it clear that it's really hard for him to talk about that time uh, for reasons unknown. That said, I feel like I got all the answers I wanted about where Mike's coming from with music which applies to all his bands. So that's how it's going down. The art this week is by Mike Riley. Check him out at MikeRileyComics.com. And we're being hosted, as always, by SpliceToday.com. Let's, Let's go, go in. Yeah, you know, I'm from Glenarm. It's a rural area, like roughly 40 minutes away, 40 minutes north of Baltimore City. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, you know, until like the 70s, it was pretty much like a rural area, mostly farms and, you know, wealthy, like sort of old moneyed people's estates. Even some of the farms were actually probably run by people who were pretty wealthy, you know, mm. um, you know, just like stuff like farms that were established prior to the Revolutionary War and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of just, you know, Scotch, Irish and Welsh people mostly lived out there um yeah like uh by the time though you know i moved out there it was like a semi suburb there was still some 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 stuff left of like the the old money people with their estates and stuff and still plenty of farms you know so it kind of felt like country but you know it would be like sort of like there'd be a lot of country and then all of a sudden there'd be like a suburban neighborhood but never like anything like shopping centers or malls or anything. And if there was, it would only be like every maybe like 10, 15 miles, you'd see something like that, yeah. you know, and there would be like country clubs, you know, that was kind of the evidence, I think more than anything else of like rich people being out there. There were like multiple golf clubs and country clubs out there, Yeah, you know, and, 
and a lot of like nice sort of like preserved land too, like Lock Raven Reservoir uh, and Gunpowder Reservoir and a bunch of other places like that. You know, yeah, yeah. like the Ledoux Topiary Gardens, which is a really interesting landmark oh, yeah. up on Jarrettsville Pike in that area. You know, that's not in Glenarm. That's like ten minute drive probably from where I grew up, but yeah. still close enough that it's like one of the more famous things there that everybody knows about. And, you know, you know, you get to do your school field trip going there and stuff like that. <laughs> Seeing all like, <clears throat> in case people don't know what a topiary garden is, it's like where people who are gardeners will grow trees, usually shrubs, uh, that are really puffy and stuff and thick and they'll like shape them into like weird patterns and sometimes even into like figures and animals. You know, like they're almost like sculptures. They basically turn trees into sculptures, you know? Um, yeah. There was a lot of other stuff up there too, you know. But yeah, I mean yeah, you know, it was like really good good place to grow up, you know? Yeah. Uh like pretty slow paced but like for a little kid especially a lot of stuff to do like sleigh riding and biking lots of hills and trails and you know always good to be around like horses and stuff and animals seeing all kinds of animals running in the yard like deer and fox you know and like yeah you know uh, plenty of opportunities to like go outside and play pretend like you're in lord of the rings <laughs> yeah. out in the woods you know and stuff like that you know <laughs> <laughs> you know and just like but also plenty of opportunities to get in trouble because things would get boring you know and you do like all the acting up like bad kid stuff too you know you could get away with it really easy because you could steal off into the woods and hide for a while <laughs> after you like egg somebody's house or whatever mm. <laughs> you know light off fireworks in the middle of the night somewhere you know yeah do whatever you know but what were your what are your parents like well, my mom, uh, you know, she, like, uh, is a retired art teacher, you know, and, you know, she's kind of, like, on the conservative side and stuff like that, you know, gets pretty confused by a lot of the art that I make, <laughs> mm. you know, but, like, I guess she figured, you know, she'd give me the basement there to rehearse in for a really long period of time, yeah. like, of my life, you know, basically, I always rehearse there, like, think until like basically probably up until around 2008 when lucas rambo joined and then i had like rehearsal spaces in carroll county oh, mostly right. and then eventually he moved to uh oh by the way lucas rambo joined human host let's yeah. like, make that clear you know so lucas rambo joined human host in 2009 and then i started rehearsing in carroll county at different places he lived at including his parents house for a while but yeah. like mostly at an apartment actually that he lived in and then uh, he moved to Baltimore, and then I started rehearsing in Remington a lot there. Oh, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, roughly from like probably like the late '80s when I first started goofing around solo with music myself, all the way up until you know, yeah, about 2008. You know, like my mom's basement was my main rehearsal space. I do lots of other stuff there too, like you know, write lyrics you know i mean like brainstorm with the other band members about tour stuff and we'd practice of course and you know i don't know just all sorts of stuff you know like would would go on creative stuff would go on down there so yeah that was a big base of operations and then you know in the Towson Glenarm days you know like uh those were the first days where like i really 
really, I'm really the only days where I ever enthusiastically got involved with doing a lot of stuff myself as far as promoting shows yeah. and booking shows at the same time, like we're concerned, you know, like, so that, in that case, during Taos and Glenarm, my mom's house was actually one of the main venues for that scene, you yeah. know, and all those bands and artists, you know, and people would come down and hang out, you know, it was a hangout to, you know, like for people who lived in the area and, you know, just enjoy the camaraderie of being on the same page yeah. <laughs> and like making weird art because of that, you know. <laughs> Do you have brothers and sisters? No, I'm an only child. Uh, and then my dad, I didn't mention my dad. My dad died when I was 10. Uh, he just died of natural causes. You mm. know, he was like 60, I think when he died. Yeah. Mm. Like, and, uh, that was drag, <laughs> yeah. you know, but, um, you know, after he died, like I got, that's probably like, you know, after I kind of like got in trouble a lot and stuff, just typical stuff, you know, just not really being like a little kid. I was like 10 when he died, Yeah, you know, so it was like, kind of like hard to like, you know, I don't know, like just like figure stuff out after that. Cause that's such a huge thing for a 10 year old to have to think about, you know, I can't even imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, pretty much, I'd say I pretty much, like, went nuts, but, like, the nuts didn't really last long. And when I say go nuts, I mean, like, kind of what I mentioned before, like, vandalizing houses mm. <laughs> and just getting into trouble drinking when I was, like, 13 and stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> just being a juvenile delinquent, basically. Like, mm. never went to, like, you know, juvie hall or anything. Though I did briefly go to boarding school, like, in the summer of 1990. Mm. Yeah, like, because I'd failed, like, three classes in high school, my first year of high school. Yeah. You know, but basically, like, from the time I was probably, like, 11 until the time I was, like, 16, uh, you know, like, I was kind of, like, trying to figure out what to do and just kind of bummed out about a lot of stuff and just having a hard time, you know, growing up, you know, just without a dad and stuff like that, you know, like, so that was weird. But then, like, you know, I guess I, when I was 15, I heard, like, some music uh, on the radio on this really awesome radio station I used to always listen to called WCVT. It was the, the underground local radio station that was run by uh, Towson State University. Yeah. But now, like, that's WTMD. Um, right. And it's totally different. Uh, you know, in the old days, WCVT was more comparable to something like uh wfmu or wmyu or kxlu or that you know, kdvs in sacramento you know it was a radio station that pretty much played everything no other radio station was playing yeah you know so my the as far as my musical taste goes like i can't say that radio station formed my musical taste because i first got interested in music when i was really little you know just like listening to like am radio my yeah. mom my mom would play that constantly all day long you know, AM radio, 70s pop hits and stuff. Yeah. And then you'd hear that in the supermarkets. And then I'd also hear in the car when she'd drive me around the old Volkswagen station wagon from 1967. Yeah. You know, the AM radio was all that was in there. Like, so, you know, that was the first music, the kind of classic rock and soft rock pop stuff from the 70s and the 60s is the first stuff I ever heard. And the main reason I got interested in music, um, especially popular music, you know, uh, but then, like, you know, underground music was something I was getting into a little bit before I heard WCVT, 89.7 WCVT. Uh, and that radio station, though, like, when I finally found it, like, really turned me on to all this kind of stuff that, like, 
nowadays like you know is really easy to find but back then was almost impossible to find you know like stuff that you just really wouldn't hear anywhere else and in some cases there are records they would play which you couldn't buy anywhere yeah you know either because they were so rare or because you know they weren't sold in maryland because there really weren't a lot of like cool record stores that sold really obscure music in the baltimore area anyway yeah. or near where i grew up for that matter you know um you know outside of baltimore yeah either you know i think dc had a lot of that you know but because they had their punk scene their hardcore scene yeah so that attracted weirdness like automatically because at that time like late 80s early 90s when i first got into music like you know that was still considered to be like something that was underground it's not like today where now it's just like muzak or something right, <laughs> like every right. other band in existence yeah. is that kind of stuff you know but like yeah i mean so consequently you know i think they got like more avant-garde and obscure music interests you know in their record stores because of that you know because it was just automatically punk and hardcore was automatically associated with that but yeah so for for baltimore the baltimore area and any place in central maryland that was roughly I think like 10 or 20 miles within like the radio stations like tower wcvt tower you could get you could hear all this weird stuff you couldn't hear anywhere else and i remember very specifically a song called jack the ripper <laughs> by a band called the one-way streets who yeah. are this punk band from the 60s and i already had heard 60s punk before that because a lot of the classic rock stations i listened to would play 60s punk like what like, you know, like, you know, the the hits, because 60s punk was popular, you know, they didn't call it punk in the 60s, right. you know, but it was stuff like Wild Thing by the Trogs yeah. and Count Five Psychotic Reaction, yeah. 96 Tears by Question Mark and the Mysterians, The Seeds Pushing Too Hard. These were all played just as often as like Sweet Home Alabama really? and really? Hey Jude and stuff. Yeah, those were huge million selling hits. You no, know? I know they were back then, but <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. never heard any of those. I guess I've heard Wild wild thing but, well you know yeah. like see in the in the 80s you know classic rock was 60s and 70s music right and i think as time goes on what what people think of as classic changes like for example in yeah. the 80s 50s music was oldies yeah it wasn't called classic rock because it would achieve the status of being quaint and anachronistic right right you know whereas like you know, Wild Thing or, uh, you know, Pushing Too Hard was still kind of edgy in 1987 because there weren't 20,000 bands imitating the yeah. seeds, you know, like uh, on this international level, you know, there wasn't like this huge, huge retro scene like eventually the 90s and the 2000s spawned, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. which of course comes from like, you know, people doing things like archiving and stuff like that, you know, like, um, you know, as soon as something becomes so important that people start hoarding artifacts associated with it, then automatically it attains a whole new kind of status, you know, which is both a good and a bad thing, you know, in many ways. But eh, the nature of the beast, I mean, yeah. like, I think it's better that somebody decided to have a seeds box set, <laughs> right. you know, totally. now, just last year or whatever, you know, like, uh, thus making the seeds part of history or something like that, you know, permanently, you know. In but some then, way, you know. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, like, the more obscure bands, the bands that were, like, really young, like, little kids, like, four, 13, 14-year-olds starting bands and self having their parents self-release records, or they would self-release right. records for playing dances and stuff. The, the original DIY scene of the 60s was something that was totally under the radar until I started listening to WCBT, and uh, 
you know, that's what the one-way streets were part of. They were living in Zanesville, Ohio, which is the Appalachia area. <laughs> You'd never imagine a insane punk song that's really violent, crazy, and chaotic, and almost pure noise yeah. could come out of a place like that. But, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to get way off the subject, but I mean, if you really think about it, sometimes places like that do spawn music that's more... Uh, you know, places that are outside of the centers of culture will end up being like sort of where like the centers of culture get their influence. You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, obviously, since we're I just mentioned Appalachia, you know, Appalachian folk, that's yeah. the root of all country music. Right. Really. I mean, uh, and then, you know, minstrel music is the root of all American music. That was the first American music, basically, you know, and that's like just everything comes from yeah. that, you know, and blues and jazz and all that you know r&b that led to rap and we can go on and on with this forever you yeah. know what i mean but all that stuff jazz blues that was rural hick music right. <laughs> made by people that lived in the hills or down south deep in the south you know and and like we're way far away from things like new york and chicago yeah. and then later on other people picked up on it you know like but yeah, you know, like that idea of stuff being off the beaten path, you know, I never really even came to me. I didn't really think about it that much. It didn't, the idea didn't gel in my head as a concept that's been a constant in music all over the world, particularly folk music, you know, um, until WCVT came along and I started hearing like the original DIY punk and garage bands from the 60s and the psychedelic bands that were self-releasing records that were more experimental, you yeah. know, like 50 Foot Hose and you know, uh, can for the German bands, you know, yeah. the German so-called crap rock bands. As I was saying to you through email the other day, you know, I've been a fan of all your different bands for a long time. And I had this moment when I was like 19, when, um, like Nick Riddle and Mike Romano were starting to play stuff like one way streets. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And like, for me, and I just remember being like, this is like Mike's bands. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, and I never saw that connection, you know, and I never yeah. knew where any, anything you were doing came from because I think you didn't really wear it on your sleeve the way later, like, like retro garage kind yeah, of yeah. bands would be. So you come into your first bands, like, knowing about all this stuff already. Yeah, 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 definitely. Like, like you know, and I mean, also another thing I have to mention, like, you know, that I heard, I'd read some stuff about Sun Ra before I ever heard him. And I read about him in the late 80s. Um, you know, just, you know, all kinds of old books, like, you know, from the, you could just get at the library or whatever, the collected articles about music, pop music and stuff like that, you know. And... You know, I'd always thought he was really interesting and stuff, but I never actually heard him until I heard him on the radio. WCBT's jazz show regularly played uh, free jazz. Right. You know? <laughs> Is this going to pick up? I think it's I, right. I can close it if you want. I think it'll be fine. Anyway, yeah, WCVT's radio station played free jazz on the regular, right next to stuff like Miles Davis, A Kind of Blue, or... You know, George Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue, yeah. or, you know, Porgy and Bess excerpts, or Billie Holiday, Bessie Smith, and all that, you know, you know, Coltrane, you know, like, all that stuff was right there, right, you know, right next to Sun Ra, and, you know, um, Sonny Chirac, and, like, 
you know, Eric Dolphy and, like, really crazy stuff, you know, yeah. that was, like, in my teenage years, like, I was like, this is noise, how is this jazz, you know? And later, of course, I read more about jazz and just the nature of jazz playing and even just listened to more straight jazz, to, and I could see there was similarities, you know, between what was going on there. But, yeah, Sun Ra, I would say, like, of any artist, like, he's maybe the only one where constantly, forever, I'd always kind of tried to imitate something that he was doing. You know, but that goes for not just his music, but also the way that he was playing it and also the way that he presented his music and the the idea that he had kind of an agenda to present with the music, you know, um, that the music really did have a message and it was in really intrinsically connected. I think more than any other artist, he's the one who's been able to establish something like that in a really powerful way that continues to resonate, you know, um, in a timeless way, you know, like. Yeah. But yeah, him, like, Sun Ra is probably the only artist where I was like, yeah, I kind of want to be like this, you know, like, but at the same time, when I started, obviously, I wasn't a jazz musician. And, right, right. You know, certainly, probably still not now. I don't know. <laughs> you know, but yeah, jazz is sort of a nebulous term, I guess. But yeah, like, you know, like, I mean, you know, the, anything I was listening to at the time, even like the most mainstream stuff, like Beatles or whatever, you know, you know, Beach Boys. Beach Boys was the first record I ever actually bought on my own when I went to a record store. It was like a greatest hits I got, you know, like a low-budget greatest hits, Yeah, you know. Um, but, you know, like, yeah, like, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. I just, as far as, like, influence stuff goes, like, it's always, like, I just try to mi mix as many of them as I can all at all at once because right. basically like when i'm making music i'm always just sort of thinking about a lot of different things all at one time you know yeah that's why like i mean i've kind of avoided genres and the few times i've dabbled in genres you know like pre-existing genres that i didn't create i mean you know like i kind of just feel like a lot of that stuff like just kind of fell flat or was very short-lived or was more conceptual art related right you know where it was like if i did ever play a genre of music would always be in conjunction with some other form of art as almost like a soundtrack or something you know yeah <laughs> you yeah, know totally you know there's i mean a million other variations on that yeah that description you know but yeah i mean it was always like yeah i mean even with my very first band that did any recording this really goofy hardcore band called rape seed oh yeah I saw <laughs> that. that band like you know oh it's so goofy i love it though i'm i'm totally down with that yeah. like you know it was a really great band political hardcore and like you know we even wanted to like be as diverse as we could be you know two members were heavy into hardcore punk so it was kind of tough to really be diverse you know in an extreme way you know, but, like, I remember we specifically wrote a song as a ballad, because we always thought, all of us always thought, like, these were all, like, people, not all, but most of the people in Rapeseed went on to be involved with Towson Glenarm. Right. So there was sort of some strands of that involved in it, but really, Rapeseed was just an, an 80s, 90s type hardcore band. You know, like, yeah. But, yeah, anyway, like, we all believed that, you know, every band should have a ballad. Right. right. <laughs> so we wrote a ballad. We actually wrote a ballad, but it had a hardcore breakdown, like, it sped up and got really fast. Yeah. And uh, we even called it Christina Says to, to imitate Velvet Underground's trio of songs, like Stephanie Says, Candy Says, all that. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, because we were in really, in, all three of us were really into Velvet Underground, you know, like, and 
<laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like from the beginning, it was always like let's pack as many ideas as we can into one project. Yeah, that was always the goal. Like with most, almost everything I've ever done, you know. Yeah, yeah. that's why you were saying, you know, like it doesn't seem like I wear my influences on yeah. my sleeve. I think it's really like that's why that's kind of an illusion. It's more like I am wearing influences, but there's so many and they're so densely smashed together. Yeah, you can't see them. It's like having like a. Uh, that like plaid shirt or something behind you like yeah. you know like you can't see every single fiber and design in it because it's so like intricately woven together yeah <laughs> how would you say that the towson glenarm scene began i think really in the end you know it was like like i said i was in that band rapeseed and a bunch of other people were also doing uh, that i knew were doing genre music at the same time or not doing any music at all because what they were really into was stuff that they didn't think anybody else liked but um, basically, like, my two friends, uh, Violet Lavoie and Matt Bray, like, were just this inseparable pair of people who were super enthusiastic and type A personalities and just out there always trying to talk to people and meet people and meet freaks. And all of us were activists. That was one thing that tied a lot of me and my teenage friends together. We all went to protests all the time and went to, like, meetings of things like Food Not Bombs and... ARA with anti-racist action and you know uh, these like anarchist organizations that were really grassroots and short-lived in Baltimore at the time in Baltimore yeah. City. Right. The only time we ever went to Baltimore City was go to things like that, you know, because yeah. Baltimore City in the eighties and nineties was just a slum. The whole place, like Harbor Place, was the only thing that wasn't a slum. Everybody else was. I mean, you know, none of us could drive, so a lot of times, like, we'd have to get our parents to take us places. And until the light rail came along, you know, we'd have to like literally sneak out of the house or lie to our parents about going yeah. to baltimore because it was just too dangerous according to our parents you know yeah i mean i think they were basically right <laughs> yeah. it was pretty rough back then you know like there were a lot of abandoned houses and things in yeah. places where you'd never think there'd be abandoned houses now like you know pen lucy and stuff like that you know like anyway like you know yeah we would all go to these things and like you know these these meetings of activist groups and we we're always networking and meeting people particularly though like violet and matt you know, like, they were just, like, that was, like, their life's work, you know? Like, they right. were obsessed with that. And I think basically what happened was, you know, a lot of times they'd run into all sorts of characters who had all sorts of projects and weird things and weird takes on the different philosophies of life we were all trying to, like, promote and support. And, I mean, I don't know. It's it's tough for me to, like, speak for other people, you know? But yeah. I remember, to me, the moment when, like, I started seeing that aesthetic that Towson Glenarm aesthetic coming through was like when I was over her over Violet's house one day I think we were waiting for somebody to show up for a band practice and they were taking a long time so she just literally you know in the pre-internet days you know you couldn't go to YouTube and listen to all this new music or pitchfork or whoever's streaming something yeah in succession of whatever's the coolest weirdest new or old thing you know like that's kept making a comeback you would just, like, go over your friend's house, and they'd have a bunch of records around and play them for you, or make you a mixtape, totally. or let you borrow stuff they thought was really good, and you'd do the same for them, you know? So she was doing that one day, and she's got, like, Devo, Bunny Brains, you know, she's got, which is a noise band, a now kind of famous, but not so famous then, Crust, like, tons of Crust 7 Inches you know, heavy thrash punk yeah. with really distorted, like, almost fuzz 60 sounding guitar, like, you know... Uh, what else did she have? Like Blondie, you know, uh, 
Beatles, of course, you know, and classic rock stuff, like folky stuff I'd never heard of. So yeah, Violet was playing all this different music, throwing all this stuff on the turntable. Local bands probably too, like, you know, random local college rock and hardcore bands, yeah. you know. And then she put on this tape by a band called The Nudists, who were all a bunch of kids. Just literally that summer, it was the summer of 92, they had all just gotten out of middle school. They were all like 13, 14. And what it sounded like to me was just like totally the craziest stuff ever. Like, it was like equally insane, like to anything like One Way Streets or Sun Ra or, you know, uh, the boredoms or like anything like that, you know, like, and they were just like, they lived up the road, you know, <laughs> and they were like, they couldn't drive and they were like little and stuff. And yeah, like, yeah. they were just like these, she'd show me pictures of them. She pulled out the yearbook and pointed them out to me and stuff. And some of them I had met before because some of them also went to the protests and stuff. Yeah. So I had seen a few of them around, particularly this guy, Lou Thomas. You know, he was really ubiquitous. I think out of that early Towson Glen Arm crew, of all the Towson people that hung out, because Violet and Matt were from like Lutherville Timonium, which is like halfway between Glen Arm and Towson. Yeah, you know, um, a suburb, a regular suburb, and then Lou and his crew of friends and the nudists were all from Towson. Like you know, they all went to Towson High School, which is where Violent went. You know, so yeah, like I mean, I was just amazed because the lyrics were like politically conscious, but there was a great sense of humor. There was also very heavy theatrical element. You know, it was just as much a recording of a performance art piece as it was an actual composition. And that was the other thing. They were doing mainly compositions. There were only a few things really even counted as songs. They weren't really working within the song form at all. Mm. And a lot of it was improvised. And they had horns, which to me was like totally insane. (laughs) I didn't know any kids who were in bands with horns. I knew like college bands that played like ska and like prog rock that had horns, you know, but like I didn't know them, but I knew of them, you know, and saw them, you know, but I didn't think like kids young that young or even my age were doing bands with horns that weren't like you know that weren't you know like some like really typical kind of music you know like or you know whatever cleanly produced conventional music you know like they were anything but conventional and basically after i heard that i was like violet you gotta like you gotta tell me who these guys are and like i mean when you gotta like introduce me to these guys i basically knew right away i wanted to play music with them yeah i mean it was like really disorienting you know (laughs) like because like before that i had not really heard anybody doing anything like what i wanted to do because i was in all these bands with people who were playing conventional music hoping that maybe if i took some initiative eventually got in good with them sort of showed off my abilities as like a front man being really crazy and stuff then i could get some power in the band possibly Mm. and write songs, you know, and sort of take these hardcore bands in a direction that was not genre-oriented at all, you know. Either turn the band already existing into something else or use some of the members to form a new band that was better or a new project. It didn't even have to be a band. Could have been, like, a comedy troupe. (laughs) Could have been anything, you know. But, like, yeah, you know, like, just... I wanted to do things, like I said, that, like, meshed all the different influences together. And in that way, you just be able to express more emotion in the music and not be like constrained and have to like worry about you know what i'm gonna say or what i'm not gonna say or how i'm gonna say it you know i mean just these guys you know it was clear that like the nudists were 
trying to do the, just that. They wanted to put all their ideas in one project, as many as they possibly could. Yeah. They even did stuff like sound collage and stuff, you know, like, again, like totally unheard of. I didn't know anybody that did that. <laughs> right, right. I did some noise recordings when I was really little. My very first recordings were noise, like me playing an acoustic guitar with a steak knife. <laughs> right, right. But I mean, like, that was me by myself. And I don't know, I lost the tape, you know, yeah. and it wasn't even like, you know, a thing. I didn't look at it as a project or anything. I didn't know what it was, you know, but like they were like focused. I mean, it was clear that like, even though, you know, a lot of the, what they were doing, like in terms of like the composition ideas were like off the cuff for sure. Like, you know, they knew that they uh, couldn't have like any like real rules, you know, other than just that group of people, like six people or whatever it was, like playing. They had a violin player too. Again, totally no I knew no band with a violin player yeah. at that time. Like, you know, that's kind of like a little bit more common nowadays, you know, but like they had someone playing violin who was new classical violin, you know, so they could improvise really well and stuff too. So like this stuff, even though it was cacophonous and crazy, sound like they their instruments were barely in tune or maybe in a didn't uh weird tuning you know like still it was music it was clear that it was music yeah and they were creating something so it was like to me it was like okay that'd be really great if like we had a lot of bands like this you know and i think some other people who were sort of on the same page as me as far as having this desire not to like work with genres you know like um just in the name of both artistic and political freedom you know like we thought that like you know, we should all get to know the nudists and their friends. And that was really, to me, for me personally, that moment with Violet just sitting in her, you know, cool basement, dark room, you know, with just, you know, a little bit of sunlight pouring in, you know, like <laughs> crappy 70s wallpaper or whatever, like, you know, just like her parents' basement, you know, that was like this suddenly became like sort of like this huge big bang area this like religious experience <laughs> transpired yeah. it became this like crazy temple that's what i look back at it as you know like because that like changed everything it it was like yeah i'd already heard music that was wild and crazy and weird but then i suddenly realized then that i knew people that wanted to do music like that also yeah and didn't want to imitate anybody else's style of wild right. crazy music you know so that was a big deal you know to know that i suddenly could potentially have and most likely would have a social circle which would be centered around making art yeah a scene i guess is what they call it right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really weird like when i read the towson glen arms the glen arm timeline like because i feel like there's so many points where it seems like it's about to like fizzle out but it just keeps growing and yeah growing. what do you think what do you think it was that made it not be like just like a half-baked idea or so you, you know like i mean that's like, a, that's a really simple answer right there okay i mean um really like matt bray like absolutely because matt bray was like really looked up to by a lot of other people because he was heavy into the activism thing more than probably anyone else. So people saw him as much as like a creative person. You know, he ran a venue out of his parents' basement, just like I did, you know, um, but his venue was definitely the center of it all. That's where all the biggest shows for the scene happened, where a lot of people met each other. Actually, everybody basically met each other. Like there was a show, the first show he ever did in his parents' basement is where pretty much all the major 
you know, key players or whatever in that scene, you know, key artists who define the style all first hung out with each other. Yeah. Was there in his basement in 1992 in like the winter or the fall or something uh, at this <clears throat> show he booked for a band from Florida, a garage punk band called Chickenhead. Like, uh, and they, you know, you know, like that was just really the beginning of it all, you know, because then like, you know, like, you know, he had been like just people knew who he was even before they met him. He was one of those kind of people. Yeah. Like just somebody he was in every single lefty political group in the Baltimore area at the time. Right. He was the president and founder of Delaney High School's Environmental Issues Club. You know, he lobbied the the state with other kids from our high school and stuff to get a recycling program, which was successful. That's a big deal yeah. for anybody of any age. But he was like 15 or 16 when yeah. he did that. <laughs> I think he started working on it. He was 14. He was still in middle school. You know, like he went to my middle school, actually, like him and Violet both did, though I didn't really know them very well at that time. Um, anyway, like, you know, like Matt, you know, he was kind of like he would never go in and like, you know, say, hey, you know, you're not political enough, you know. But if Matt was around, like people felt compelled to make the work more political. You know, they wanted to like make it something that was going to save the world. <laughs> and that Matt would like, you know, because of all his experience with all these groups plus like his experience as an artist himself, he was in hardcore bands, you know, with me and Violet. Um, you know, people thought of him like as being someone who kind of could, you know, he would his approval of a band or if he booked your band or if he was you know, went to one of your shows, that was, like, the litmus test, you know, that meant, like, okay, you're legit now, like, and then, you know, he moved away from Maryland at the end of 1994, and as you'll, I'm sure you've read in the timeline, you know, for the Towson Glenarm timeline that's, you know, on the web, like, you know, that's really when things kind of slowly started to unravel, you know, I mean, as soon as he was gone, like, you know, the heart was still there, you know, people were definitely still into art, it's not like people stopped liking music because Matt Bray moved away, you know, but, you know, it started either, depending on your point of view, depending on who you ask, you know, it started either changing, so the soul of the scene really started changing either so much that it had to go in a different direction and stop, or, you know, it just, like, wasn't, like, as meaningful to as many people anymore because mm. he left, you know, yeah. like, cause like, you know, there were a whole lot of people who were involved that, you know, were maybe a little more into politics and music. And there were also a whole lot of people involved that were maybe a little more into art than politics. Yeah. You know? And I think once he was gone, like he was like the glue that held those people together. You know what I mean? Yeah. And his basement, you know, he set it up with all this political propaganda and stuff. So it really did seem like this sort of like left wing teenage clubhouse, you know, <laughs> and he would book bands. Yeah, he would specifically book bands who had leftist political ideologies. Right. Like that's who he booked. Even the crappy emo bands he booked. Yeah. Sorry, crappy emo bands. If you're listening to this. <laughs> but yeah, like, he you saw know, it all as one. Yeah. He thing. saw us as potentially being a part of that that 90s emo scene which you know in a way he's kind of right because there are there is the one similarity there like a lot of the the emo that came out you know in the 90s and the late 80s and throughout the 80s was stuff that did have a political message yeah and was deeply associated with stuff like hardcore more than rock right you know which is like what emo is basically now it's like a form of rock music yeah but i mean back then it was hardcore 
you know, emotional hardcore. That's yeah. where it gets the name emo, yeah. you know? So, yeah, you know, like, definitely, like, that's really, I think, what kept it together. And, like, he, Matt, you have to understand, was just so enthusiastic and so overblown, and he could really be, like, totally awesome. And sometimes he could be so critical. He was, like, very <laughs> insensitive even mm. to people. Like, you could be really insulting, or he could be ecstatically uh, complimentary to you. He was just this guy who was extreme in every mm. way. Very much, like I said, like a type A leader personality. Yeah. And even though he, you know, claimed to hate leaders because he liked our anarchism or whatever. Right, <laughs> like, right. You know, like, so with him gone and his venue gone, like, yeah, it was pretty much only a matter of time till things, like, really changed irrevocably, you know. As, as far as the politics outside of that guy, like, where where does your politics come from at that age uh i think like you know honestly it's because of the place we're from like being from maryland i think that maryland like exists in a really specific political milieu you know like i mean and like i think it's impossible for even kids to ignore that you know like it's just one of those things that permeates the culture there you know and it's basically the whole state i mean like for example, you go out west and, like, you know, people, you know, are really poor or whatever, and, you know, right to the north is Pennsylvania, like, Pittsburgh and yeah. stuff. Yeah, like, you know, you've got Pittsburgh, like, an actual city, like, to the north, but in the west it's of Maryland, it's, like, really, really rural and poor. Yeah. You know, like, so those people kind of, and same thing with Baltimore, they look at Baltimore and Pittsburgh as being these other universes, and they right. don't want any part of it. They even, I've heard people talk about, like, how people in those areas, those counties out west, like, want to secede from Maryland right, and become right. their own state, you know, we're part of West Virginia, you know, like, uh, just because the culture's so different than, like, the eastern shore, you know, they have a whole different thing going on. I mean, like, Maryland's just weird. It's, like, it's always been this place where there's all these divisions and people are always vying for power, you know, and the center of the state always seems to have more power than the rest of the state, you know, and, you know, the cities in those states you know, for for as long as I can remember being a little kid, they were always troubled, you know, D.C. and Baltimore, always yeah. centers of poverty and crime, you know, like, and it was always pretty, you know, as soon as I came of age, as soon as I learned about the civil rights movement and stuff like that, and more about Civil War, too, like, you know, it became pretty obvious that, like, you know, the reason those cities were the way they were was because of racism specifically against black people. Because yeah. those people, black Americans, make up the majority of the population in Baltimore, for sure. I can't really speak for D.C., but, like, I know I there's so. a very yeah. large African-American population yeah. in D.C., especially in the areas um, that are, like, actual neighborhoods in the city. Yeah. You know, but Baltimore, for sure. You know, I mean, like, last statistic I saw was, like, 80% of the people in the greater metropolitan area were black, you yeah. know. So, I mean, you know, seeing like that and seeing how bad the city was, was just like so such an inconsistency, you know, like that, you know, that was probably the main thing you know, that sort of woke everybody up. And then, of course, the Mason Dixon line, like hang over all of it, representing all these different things involving injustice, inequality, inequality, slavery, you know, I mean, like, and then hearing the casual racism of white people you know, in Maryland, you know, which for me was a norm. I don't know about other people listening to this or you, but like, that was something I always heard and didn't realize was bad until I was a teenager, you know, yeah. 
like again because you know we learn more about the war and the civil rights movement yeah when when we're in middle school and high school you know so i think that like everybody has a consciousness about that who lives in maryland but it's like yeah you know like i guess like you know the 90s was like a weird time where like you know this very liberal president bill clinton came into office so i think a lot of the ideas that he represented you know and all the mutations the permutations of the liberal ideology became a lot easier to come by and know about in general yeah. so that's like the thing i think that really makes towson glenarm is really specific part of 90s culture even yeah. though, like, when you listen to something like, say, the nudists or lesbian chicken maggot blasters, it sounds like some weird Tumblr band that would be out now, <laughs> you know, like, that, that would be playing Brooklyn or whatever, or, right. or, or Oakland or something in a warehouse, you know? But, like, you know, really, like, they were very much of their time because that music, you know, and the approach and the lyrics and the theater and everything surrounding it and the way that we all came together through, like, this interest in politics, the shared interest in politics you know, was, I think, part of that, like, that, like, sort of newfound acceptance of left, left-wing ideology, you know, it became very mainstream, you know, the 90s, like, you know, had, like, stuff like, you know, uh, the first, you know, um, you know, gay kiss on television, I think, wasn't that Ellen? That oh, was the yeah. 90s, right? Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. That might have been like 2000 or something. So you might want to cut that out. <laughs> we got to Google that one. Yeah, yeah. And stuff like, you know, the gay rights movement became like very, very mainstream. Yeah. You know, that was almost the 90s was to the gay rights movement what the 60s was to the civil rights movement. That's yeah. how I felt, you know, because I went to as many pro-choice rallies as gay rights rallies back yeah. then, you know. And like, you know, I mean, just seeing like how the inequities that, you know, you know, were um, such an inspiration, you know, for the civil rights movement were also really similar in so many other forms of injustice, like sort of led to a domino effect of everyone trying to understand all the different things that were wrong with society. You know, I mean, and I mean, everybody in town, another thing about Towson Glenarm was that so many of them, probably like half the kids, maybe a little more, you know, were very academically inclined and good at school. Yeah. You know, so these were people who were just for leisure reading all the time. Right. You know, so I think that had a lot to do with it because when you have those people around, they're absorbing gigantic quantities of information. Matt Bray was one of these people too. Yeah. You know, like he he definitely always had ambition to do really good in school and he today is a lawyer, you know, so I mean, he took that ambition as far as it could go, you know, like... So, I mean, like, having those people around with, like, sort of the regular weird artist types who were just, like, unconventional and, like, didn't do good in school, you know, kind of led, you know, them to start reading and interpreting stuff in, you know, a variety of ways also, which then affected, you know, the nerds. <laughs> right, right. So the freaks and the nerds kind of became one, you know, yeah. in that sense, you know. Um, so, yeah, I'd say that's, like, mainly, like, those things, you know, just, like, the, the climate, the cultural climate of the 90s. Combined with, like, you know, just the fact that everybody kind of, you know, were, were intellectuals or wanted to be intellectuals or something like that, you know, sort of conspired to, like, create that political thread that runs through basically all of the Towson Glenarm work, you know? Yeah. If I just took a quick listen to some, some of that stuff I wasn't familiar with before, like, like Within or something like that. Um, 
I feel like it's almost like I would guess if you said like where are these people coming from? I I guess I would say like nihilism or something. <laughs> it sounds so like you, you know what I mean because that's where a lot of crazy music is coming from. Yeah, I yeah. I feel like how did it become like this nuts music is going to like spread the message or you, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, that, like, is a little bit more of a complex answer. I'll try to, like, summarize it. Um, yeah. Like, like, so, you know, I've been mentioning the idea of, like, using a lot of different ideas to create art, you know, and how that was, like, paramount in Taos and Glenarm, and still paramount for me, no matter what, in, like, nearly every project I've ever had as an artist, you know. Um, that really came, again, from a political thing, you know. I mean, and the you know, it was like, okay, so we're going to go out and save the world. We can't use the structures that already exists. So we tear down the system. That means we tear down, you know, imperialism and capitalism and all the other bad isms that everybody on the far left, like hates or whatever, you know? Uh, so I think symbolically the idea was like, okay, so conventional music, structured music, music using scales that are pre-existing, you know, you know, the idea of just, like, music that's song-based and uses very clear elements of other people's songwriting styles, you yeah. know. Or even on the opposite end, you know, some things like being overly conscious about, like, using formulas. Right. You know, right. the idea of, like, being, like, sort of generic, like, not generic, uh, synthetically uh original right you know just being weird for weird sake even that was called into question because that was a reactionary thing you know we didn't want to really be reactionaries that was the main thing i think that's like to me of all the things that make Taos and glenarm ahead of its time that's the number one thing mm. you know the idea that like we didn't see a real polarized dynamic you know like most people do you know, most people in anything in life, you know, they see everything as some sort of competition, some sort of fight between good and evil. And those absolutes didn't exist in Taos and Glenarm. Mm. I mean, okay, so actually, you know, maybe they did in a very, very uh, transient kind of way or a way that was very subtle. Yeah. You know, like, clearly, no one was a Republican, right. you know, in Taos and Glenarm, you know, like... No Towson Glenn our band representing conservative political ideologies. And would have they would have told you told you, myself included, we all would have said most of us would have said we don't like the conservative ideology. Yeah. But I don't think anybody was ever like, let's kill the conservatives or you know, like how some of the punks talk about and the skinheads talk about going to beat up the racists, you know, right, like right. it was never like, let's go burn down the KKK. Right. It was more like, well, let's like try a different approach. Let's, like, do something outside of this constant conflict between right and wrong, you know, and try to, like, make a world that's just generally equitable for anyone, you know, yeah. to, to, to exist, you know. And, yeah, you know, like, by playing, I mean, this is a very extremely idealistic thing that only teenagers could come up with. <laughs> like, right. don't know anything about the world, like, <laughs> the real world, quote-unquote. Like, you know, but, like, we figured if we don't use the conventional structures, the conventional formulas of art that exist, like, that would be the first step to crushing the imperialism. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, that's a little thing to do, but if you do that little thing, plus emphasize all these, like, big 
political theories within in the context of this attempt to subvert so-called normal music or normal art, you know, then a domino effect will happen. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we saw our scene growing and we saw things getting bigger. The band, The Preschoolers, was the biggest band in Towson Glenarm, and they got really, really popular before they broke up. Right. They were on their way to big things, I think, for sure. You know, like, you know, so everybody kind of wanted to follow that lead. They were like, okay, they're going up. They're going up. More people are going to pay attention to them. You know, who knows what could happen? They could become the Pete Seeger or <laughs> Vela yeah. of Sky, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, um, that's that was the idea. You know, like do something really, really original that um, comes from an organic place. Have fun doing it and genuinely love it with all your heart. And like that, the power of that will be infectious. You know, and yeah. you know, or not the power, like just the enjoyment of that will right. be infectious, and everybody will join in you know, eventually, and we'll, you know, like, storm the White House singing Heavy Metal Penis. <laughs> and I think you can guess the rest from there. <laughs> like, I, I had never heard the preschoolers before, but it seemed like, yeah, they were, like, the big, the biggest, yeah. act, I guess. What did you think about the idea of yourself being something like that or did you ever think that i mean i think we all did in some way like yeah. you know i mean and i don't think it was like oh like i said before no one probably said hey i'm gonna be like the next pete seeger right. you know or the next like uh you know uh curtis mayfield you know yeah. like i don't think people like looked at it like that you know i think really the focus was like you know just the idea that like you know, this would plant a seed for a much, much bigger thing to happen that would be outside of us, more powerful right. than us. We wanted to, like, share our music, you know? Right. That was the whole thing. And, like, the idea of having this polarized dynamic like the punks did and the hardcore kids and the grunge, like, authority, knock right. it down. It was more like, well, you know, like, okay, there are bad elements of authority, but there's good elements, too. I mean, we, you know, let's try to find a little bit of good in everything. Yeah. You know, and then bring it all together and start over. Like, you know, build all, you know, get together, destroy the 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 pre-existing structure of society and build a whole new society. Yeah. And that's that's what I thought I was doing with Within. I'm sure, like, not all members of the preschoolers, but some of them probably thought that they yeah. were doing that with their music too, you know. I mean, I mean, there's other people that probably felt that way too, you know. Uh, but yeah, for me personally, yeah, that was the idea. It would be the beginning of something, even if it, even if it wasn't, even if within the band within that I did was not going to be, you know, the musical equivalent of a Che Guevara, you know, like, you know, it would eventually inspire whoever. Uh, was going to be the next Che Guevara. Yeah. You know, that's what I wanted to do, you know. And it, then eventually reap the benefits of a better way of life as yeah. a result. You know, that was my... I didn't care about money and stuff, you know. Right. <laughs> you know, that was the whole idea that, that we were doing community service by doing all this crazy music and art, you know. <laughs> it's, it's pretty wild. Like, you know, if you asked me, take, I don't know, what would be another town like Glenarm? Uh, let me think. Uh, Bel Air. Sure, Bel Air. Okay. Yeah. If you said what's going on with like teenagers in Bel Air, I'm sure <laughs> there's some cool shit going on. But I'd be like, yeah, there's probably a band that 
like is trying to get on one of these like ninety eight rock showcases, right, or right, something like that, and like that's about it. Or so, and yeah, it's like yeah. it's pretty wild that such a tiny place had had this super awareness, yeah, of, of this idea of making your own community or something like that. I mean, there yeah. were some unusual people involved who had really unusual backgrounds, you know, yeah. and. I'm not, I mean, like, you know, I'm not quite sure if, like, I can really say stuff about that because some of it's super personal stuff for those people, you know, but, you know, like me, like, you know, having, like, a father who died and stuff probably affected my point of view on the world. Seeing, like, death at a young age, you know, kind of changes your perspective on everything. Yeah. So maybe, like, I mean, I wouldn't doubt that somehow that played into my, like, awareness of politics because, you know, a lot of what happens with politics is things like war and exploitation things that lead to death and having that knowledge of like losing a loved one you know one of the most important people in my entire life like totally (laughs) like i'm sure like you know led me to to a more political more developed political views than other people my own age you know who had not had parents who were who died you know um trisha lane forster from the band spastic cracker she uh you know was born with only one arm you know, so I think her viewpoint of inequity in society was totally influenced by that. Yeah. You know, she's commented on that publicly before, you know, um, and, she, you know, her being one of the main, you know, artists, one of the most popular artists in the entire scene, both as a musician and a visual artist and a poet and a zine publisher, you know, like she was a force to be reckoned with. She was just extremely prolific and creative and people probably viewed her in a similar light as Matt Bray, too. Right. Especially, like, younger girls, because there weren't a lot of girl bands at that time, like, in in my, you know, uh, experience with Baltimore music, yeah. or Maryland music, even. Like, right. you know, even in the DC hardcore scene, which was so politically correct, you know, there was really only one Bikini Kill and a handful of other bands that yeah. had women in them. So, I mean, the fact that, like, a ton of women were involved in our scene also, and that they were real pioneers of the sound and the the attitude, you know, like... I think also made a difference because everybody always knows, like, as everybody knew back then, that was one of those things, you know, feminism, you know, like was totally like something people talked about regularly, you know, and knew that 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 existed because there were inequities in society. Yeah. So that added furthermore to like, just really like driving home all these political messages to be a a force, you know? So what do you mean when you say it, it fell off at a certain point or like changed or something like that. I mean, yeah, like I said, you know, there was, I think this great balance between the the political activism and the art and basically people either got more into one or the other. And oddly at the same time, you know, Matt Bray moved away, you know, uh, his venue closed, which was absolutely the most important venue in the scene, you know? And also shortly after that, a lot of other kids started you know matt moved away to go to college you know he actually always was in college he came home in the summer of 94 and that's when he opened his house as a real venue i think he had maybe two shows before that okay like while he was you know kind of still in maryland like um but yeah anyway like he uh went to nyu came back but yeah then like after the summer of 94 he left for good he basically never came back except to visit his family once in a while um and that happened with other people too a lot of people moved away to go to college, you know, because these are, remember, academically inclined kids who are really, really smart and good at school and 
able to get scholarships in a variety of different things, you know, not just art, you know, like all sorts of academic pursuits. So, I mean, like, you know, everybody like pretty much knew, I think that they had, were going to have to go eventually. And that time happened at about the same time Matt left. And, yeah. and at the same time that that happened, then people started getting the aspirations to like either go, like I said, go to college and do good at college or get more serious about the music and maybe do that as a job. And I was in that kind of in the latter. I mean, I didn't really think about that honestly until probably 99, you know, oh, okay. really, really seriously. Right. I'd thought about it and thought it was great. It'd be cool to do that, but it, it seemed impossible. You know, before that happened, it just seemed like, oh, my music's too weird. You know, no one will ever like this, you know, like, yeah. like large groups of people will never like this, you know. I mean, within got a review of Maximum Rock and Roll and was bad. You know, our seven inch got review oh, of Maximum right, Rock right. and Roll and was like totally negative except for the lyrics. <laughs> but when they had complimented the political lyrics in classic 90s, politically <laughs> correct style, they loved the lyrics, but they like hated the music and really dissed it, you know. But yeah, like, you know, yeah, it just seemed like music wasn't really um, going to go anywhere for some of the people, but some of the people did want to stick with it. Like Eli Jones and Sean Faze. You know, they were really technically proficient musicians totally. and totally original and creative without yeah. even trying to be, you yeah. know, they were just total geniuses and are total geniuses, both of them, you know, uh, so they had totally fully developed their ideas. And I think that, you know, for them, some of the political stuff probably, I don't, I, I don't know about Eli, but I've, I've definitely heard Sean like, you know say that he wasn't so interested in the political stuff. Yeah. So when Matt Bray was out of the picture, you know, like, I think that gave some of the less politically inclined people the opportunity to be a little bit more ambitious. Right. Because they felt like they no longer had, like, this hovering political correctness going on, like, yeah. you know, like a, you know, hovering like a heli police helicopter, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, like, but, you know, like, that was one of the defining elements of the scene. And with that gone things just started turning into something else that just happened. You know, totally. it wasn't, I don't really think Sean Faze or Ryan Kidwell or anybody else who came in that later generation of kids was like, I want to destroy the political ideology of yeah. Dawson Glenarm. No, right. <laughs> like I said, there was never this us versus them attitude in this scene. You know, that's yeah. why we didn't like hang out with the punks or the hardcore kids as much and why, why, why we didn't identify with them as much. So even those who were like sort of out slightly less interested in the political stuff still respected what was going on with people's political beliefs. But they, yeah. I, they just, you know, you know, they just, they got, those people got, I think, a lot more active after Matt Bray left. Okay. You know, and that's, you know, one of many things, you know, that led to the end of the scene. Also, you know, I haven't talked about this too much. I kind of have a idea for this in my mind for a, a blog piece in the future, but drugs came into the scene about the time matt left also oh. you know partying yeah. you know like with um not gonna name names who did this but you know right. marijuana acid underage drinking uh cough syrup <laughs> right you know weird pills you know i mean probably ecstasy you know that was really big in the 90s yeah. you know like i didn't know that many people that did it but i'm sure people did it and unfortunately there were even some people who did harder drugs and end up getting in a lot of trouble Right. You know, like really serious trouble and having like really horrible things happen to them, you know, right. as a result of that. You know, so that definitely like, you know, it's so funny. That's one of the things about like Towson Glenarm that 
kind of makes me realize it's unique. You know, you hear like about, you know, stories of art movements in history and how like they sort of snowball and people like sort of turn on to drugs like the hippies for example right. like you know they were the beatniks first and then they evolved into the hippies as they took all more drugs <laughs> and right. became more creative you know like but with us it was the opposite it was like the drugs came along and that started people really started shifting more towards genre music when the drugs came in and of course also that took quite a toll on anybody's political ambitions oh yeah <laughs> you know like uh i don't think it turned anybody into conservatives or moderates but i mean political activism became less a priority when you got to go hide somewhere and smoke up yeah it's just <laughs> you maybe know? perhaps a more like self-centered mentality or something absolutely that, that from, yeah you know? absolutely and you know you gotta like give the kids a break yeah. <laughs> give us all a break here we're kids you know oh yeah so mapre left and that was a very big deal i think that like people were some people were really bummed about that right and some people like you know just i think thought that was the end right done it's over forget about it you know but some people actually took a different attitude like lou thomas for example and chris Terrett and a bunch of them scott gilmore they tried to imitate matt bray's approach you know, and try to really basically as a group become just like him. And that's why they formed the strange quasi organization called the, the Towson Glenarm Unity Coalition. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, which was absolutely ridiculous. And even back then, as a 20 year old stoner or whatever, like I could tell that that was going to fail. Because <laughs> right, right, right. they were just so overblown about it, which is great. You know, it's hilarious. I'm glad that they tried to, and I always rooted for them. I wanted them to win. I wanted them totally to prove me wrong, that they were going to turn Towson into a hotbed of, like, <laughs> radical left-wing political activists. Yeah. <laughs> this corny suburb, you know, like, with upper-middle-class people, you know. Um, but it, it was totally destined to failure. You know, it was, like, very much, like... It was just really an overblown version of what Matt was trying to do. Yeah. I think Matt was very realistic because he didn't try. They were trying to get things like grunge and these kids from the mall who are punk rock identifying people, you know, like to get hang out with us and accept our political ideologies and stuff. Matt knew those people were just out of the question because they right. were all getting high way, way long ago. Yeah. Before any of this happened, any of this Towson Glenarm stuff happened. You know, they were in a different universe. They may as well have been, you know, like, even though occasionally they would end up at our shows just because there were a lack of all ages activities for kids in the suburbs outside of ours, you know, right. especially like right in those neighborhoods where a lot of those mall punk kids lived, you know. But anyway, like, you know, like, yeah, Matt w w was sort of like, you know, he, he, like I said, he identified with like the emo and the hardcore, the left wing hardcore, you know, and. He tried to focus on that, you know, and get those people who were into that stuff back then to start coming in. You know, he knew that the indie rockers and the grunge rockers and the kids who bought Rancid albums at Hot Topic were not gonna start a revolution. Yeah. They were probably gonna start a family 10 years later. <laughs> yeah. Or be in rehab or have a crappy job so, or just disappear, you know, into yeah. like obscurity of post high school, you know, and normal life. So... Yeah, I don't. Lou and them were so idealistic, you know, and I think that, like, then when that effort petered out, probably sometime in 95, you know, like 1995, you know, uh, that I think was a big blow for them, you know, because that came basically when that didn't work out, that basically 
And when the Towson Glenarm Unity Coalition kind of ceased to function, that was just about the time they all left for college. Yeah. So that that was the first big punch, you know, like that knocked a lot of stuff out. You know, just all those disappointments coupled with the drugs, coupled with people going to college and having real life aspirations, adult life, excuse me, as, having people having adult life aspirations, you know, you know that were nascent, you know, but still powerful. Yeah. You know, at age 20, you know, like, just coming in, you know, and, uh, you know, all that happened. And then, you know, of course, like, you know, I mean, 1997 rolls along, and pe- still, things are still pretty active. People were coming home to visit, you know, Towson all the time, who we were away at college. Yeah. So, the bond was definitely still there, and we would go visit each, I would visit them sometimes, like Chris yeah. Terrett and Beach Terry, who was a writer involved with the scene. You know, and all these other people who went to Bard College, Laura Burke, you know, they were all up there and I would go visit them and hang out, you know, and, you know, we were, we were like all still hanging out, you know, and even like, you know, the preschoolers broke up in like, I think it was 96, you know, they were the scene's biggest band, no question about it. That wasn't helpful when they broke up. They were kind of like the last, you know, stalwart of the original bands, you know, because they started in 93 concurrently to the nudists or one of those bands the nudists had several different names actually mm. which they sometimes used all at once <laughs> you know further adding to the whole like uh, modus operandi of trying to subvert like what a band is or oh, isn't, yeah. or isn't you know like anyway like so the preschoolers you know they broke up and that was a huge bummer they tried to stay together and try to get replacements but they just couldn't do it so then all their members spread out into new projects and stuff some of which were vastly different some of which weren't so, you know, some of them also went to college and left the state, you know, and yeah, I mean, like, yeah, you know, like, uh, Dave Willamain, who was like one of the big artists in that scene, like he, like, you know, he had, you know, I mean, he killed himself, you know, I mean, um, <laughs> in like the summer of 1997. Yeah. So, oh, man. yeah, that was, there's no doubt. I mean, you ask anybody who was part of that, that that whole Towson Glen Arm thing, like, ask anybody, like, they'll tell you that was the, the final, no pun intended, for real, the final nail in the coffin. Yeah. That just did it. I mean, maybe, like, I'll, I mean, you know, like, the, the comps have music from after 1997 in some cases, you know, so the aesthetic stuck around, but definitely as far as a scene, you know, as a movement, yeah. like, you know, that was cohesive and had really similar aims, uh, you know, throughout all the different artists, you know. You know, it was gone the minute that happened, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, because, I mean, with people leaving, going for college, away for college already, you know, they just, like, you know, they really didn't want to, like, stick around. Dave Wilmaine's death gave them another reason not to want to hang out. Yeah. Because, like, with him gone, you know, permanently gone forever, it wasn't like Matt Bray who just moved away and got into other stuff. Like, this guy, like, killed himself, you know? <laughs> Yeah. You know, he definitely killed himself. He was never, ever going to come back. And he was one of the people that defined the whole scene, the whole aesthetic. One of them, also one of the most enthusiastic people, just like Matt, you know, had a lot of friends all over the place outside of the scene, you know, even, you know, uh, outside of even political activism. You know, he was a really well-liked guy. And it was a total shock when he killed himself and absolutely no one was expecting it. Yeah completely shocking and sad you know yeah i mean it was just 
Yeah, I mean, it was horrible, you know, and I mean, for me, it kind of spurred me on to try and figure out ways to just kind of keep his legacy alive and the scene, the whole scene's yeah. legacy alive, you know, because I was like, no, 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 like this, I'm not going to let this like slow me down. This is horrible and sad. And I'm probably not going to do shit for a while. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I'm probably going to be mopey as hell and super depressed for a long, long, long time. But like, there's no way this can like kill you know what what we have and what we started you know we have to continue this like forever now officially you know yeah. <laughs> that was always probably a thought in a lot of back of a lot of people's minds but for me then it became like life's work you know mm. like uh you know and it was like there's no way even if i work a crappy job at a factory and i can't make a living as an artist like i'm still gonna like follow the example of people like dave willamine you know in terms of yeah. how i'm gonna create art Thanks again to Mike. We're going to have part two next week. See you then.